Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've been thinking a lot lately about civility. Of course, basic politeness and exercising good manners is essential. But I think civility, real civility, goes deeper. It means to choose our words carefully and thoughtfully in non-hurtful ways. It means to be respectful of how another person sees the world even when we heartily disagree. And to maintain a sense of humility, because as a wise friend of mine used to say, we could always be wrong. These are lofty goals which I practice imperfectly, of course. But that's the tone we strive for in these programs. Thank you for listening. You're listening to The Rights of Civilians, a special project from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. President Putin launched a full-scale invasion of our fellow UN member state. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Ukraine has defended itself with great courage and vigor, but the brazen and indiscriminate nature of Russia's attack has had devastating, horrific consequences for the entire country. Russia has bombed residential apartment buildings, it has bombed sacred burial grounds. It has shelled kindergartens and orphanages and hospitals. Russia has spurred mass hunger and caused so many to flee their homes. We thank the countries who have opened their borders, who have opened their hearts, opened their homes to those fleeing Ukraine. This is the central railway station in The Hague, less than an hour's ride south from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. This venerable seacoast city serves as host to several important global courts. One of these tribunals, the International Criminal Court, or ICC, could be the venue for historic upcoming trials. The prosecutor has opened a formal investigation into potentially criminal acts committed by the Russian military in its murderous invasion of Ukraine that began in February 2022. These kinds of horrors are why the late Walter Cronkite advocated creation of the ICC by the United Nations. He had attended the Nuremberg war crimes trial of Nazi leaders after World War II. If we are to have a lasting peace in the world, we are going to have to have some system of international law and order. We're going to have to yield some sovereignty to do that. All the nations of the world will have to do that, yielding up to an international system of order and law. The importance of Nuremberg was it did establish this precedent for this kind of legal action and this kind of court. But when the World War II tribunals completed their prosecutions, many observers felt this left a legal void. If new war crimes were committed, temporary courts would have to be started from scratch with little continuity or institutional stability. So for decades, a determined band of human rights advocates pressed for creation of a permanent tribunal to prosecute the worst crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I have the honor to declare open this United Nations Diplomatic Conference on the establishment of the International Criminal Court. I invite the participants to observe one minute of silence for prayer or meditation. Rome, Italy, July 1998. UN Secretary General Kofi Annan attended a gathering of nations where the treaty for the new court was formally adopted. People all over the world want to know that humanity can strike back, that whatever and whenever genocide, war crimes, or other such violations are committed, there is a court before which the criminal can be held to account, a court that puts an end to a global culture of impunity, a court where all individuals in a government hierarchy or military hierarchy, without exception, from rulers to private soldiers, must answer for their actions. The Rome Treaty envisioned a human rights court system that would operate in The Hague with judges and prosecutors appointed from around the world. But the court would have jurisdiction over only nations that ratify the treaty. When the required minimum of ratifications was reached in 2002, the International Criminal Court came into effect. On December 31st, 2000, only three weeks away from the end of the Clinton administration on January 20th of 2001, I boarded a, an Amtrak train in Washington very early in the morning uh, to New York. David Sheffer served as the State Department's ambassador for war crimes issues under President Bill Clinton. Full ratification begins when a nation signs the treaty, which indicates basic support. But many American conservatives were deeply skeptical of the new court. They feared it could restrict Pentagon decisions. So obtaining U.S. signature was a bold first step. Why I was on a train is we had a huge snowstorm in Washington, and the, the planes were not taking off. So I had to get to New York. Why did I have to get to New York that morning? Well, it's because President Clinton was at Camp David, and for several days he was examining the pros and cons of, of signing the Rome Statute to the International Criminal Court so that the United States would at least be a signatory nation. That doesn't mean it's a ratified nation. That requires Senate uh, uh, approval you know, for ratification of a treaty. But the first step is signing it. Which signals an intent to consider ratification. Yeah, exactly. And President Clinton had to decide whether or not this was, that was the last possible day to sign the Rome Statute under the terms of the treaties. A powerful voice objecting to the U.S. ratification of the treaty was Jesse Helms of North Carolina, who died in 2008. He was an arch conservative who once led a 16-day Senate filibuster to prevent Martin Luther King Day from becoming a federal holiday. In the year 2000, Helms chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, the court supporters argue that Americans should be willing to sacrifice some of their sovereignty for the noble cause of international justice. Well then, international law did not defeat Hitler, nor did it win the Cold War. What stopped the Nazi march across Europe and the communist march across the world was the principled projection of power by the world's greatest democracies. 
And that principled protection of force is the only thing that will ensure the peace and the security of the world in the future. With strong pressure from the Pentagon against signing the International Criminal Court Treaty and as President-elect George W. Bush prepared to take office, Bill Clinton faced a stark choice in the final weeks of his presidency in late 2000. Former Ambassador David Sheffer. President Clinton had not made up his mind on the, by the morning of December 31st. And remember, by midnight of that day, there's got to be a decision. Um, so I was instructed, get on the train, and maybe by the time you get to New York, he will have decided. Sheffer, who later became a law professor at Northwestern University, recalled the events in his memoir, All the Missing Souls. Well, when I got to New York, I was, I was going up the escalator at Penn Station, and uh, I had my snow boots on, it was snowing, it was, you know, just terrible outside. And um, as I was ascending the escalator, I got my, a call on my cell phone from uh, Secretary of State Albright. And uh, she told me, well, uh, David, I, I'm very pleased to inform you that the president has decided that the United States will sign the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and you are hereby delegated you know, with plenary power to go to the UN and sign for the United States. What was that like? Well, um, I, it was a great moment for me because I had, I had fought eight long years for this. And frankly, as the book describes, there was a time after the Rome conference in 98 when I was sort of a lone voice within the U.S. government even to go back into the follow-on negotiations uh, for the Rome Statute. At a later U.N. ceremony, the Rome Treaty creating the International Criminal Court had been adopted by 66 nations, from Bulgaria to Cambodia, from Ireland to Niger to Mongolia. A page in the history of humankind is being turned. I think it was a, a hugely momentous moment. I think it was a, a milestone in, in every sense of the word in, in international law. Barbara Crosset was UN bureau chief for the New York Times. It was something that most people thought over 50 years who pressed for this just had almost assumed it would never happen or it would take a whole lot longer. So it was a tremendously important moment. It's uh, incredible to see the labors of all of us come to fruition like this. And uh, this is an institution that is much needed, that the world has waited for very long. And uh, we are very happy that the court is finally coming into existence. Vahida Nainar from India was active in a coalition of women's legal groups that lobbied for the new court to include sexual violence committed during war in its lengthy, terrible list of punishable crimes. Ending the age of impunity was a watershed moment for UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. Those who commit crimes war crimes, genocide, or other crimes against humanity will no longer be beyond the reach of justice. Humanity will be able to defend itself, responding to the worst of human nature with one of the greatest achievements, the rule of law.
the International Criminal Court's potential has yet to be fully realized, but it does establish a crucial framework for meeting out justice to perpetrators of the most serious crimes. It gives countries diplomatic tools that they otherwise wouldn't have in which to avoid conflict in many cases. Michael Scharf spoke to me about the ICC at its inception. Since 2013, he has served as a dean at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. When you have a country whose leaders are starting to commit genocide or crimes against humanity or war crimes, instead of having to go in and invade them, instead of having to go in and assassinate them, now you can go and indict them. And once you have an indictment, they become prisoners in their own country. They can't travel abroad. It becomes very hard for a leader to continue to lead under those circumstances. That certainly happened to Slobodan Milosevic after he was indicted. It did. It also gives you the moral support for economic sanctions, and sometimes it also gives you the moral support to get an international coalition together to use force. And sometimes force is necessary in order to stop genocide. So ultimately, it may not end war, but it gives us another diplomatic tool by which, in many cases, we can avoid it. So you think it could help reduce war? Not just war, but it also can reduce the um, crimes that governments commit within their own territory. Professor Rudy Rummel from University of Hawaii was nominated for the Nobel Prize for his work called Death by Government, in which he documented meticulously that 170 million people have been killed by their own governments. Now, whether that is death during a genocide or crimes against humanity outside of war, or during an internal armed conflict. In either case, this is a situation that just can't stand. And in the past, the international community has looked the other way. Now you've got an international mechanism that is going to focus on that. And it may not be that you get the leaders right away, but as Slobodan Milosevic has shown, if you can indict them and isolate them, ultimately this can lead to their downfall and ultimately they may face international justice. The advent of a lasting international criminal court marks a turning point in the age-old quest to humanize society. The architects of the new court faced an intricate, almost mind-boggling challenge, shaping a valid system of criminal law to encompass the world's worst crimes that could be accepted by enough countries to be workable. The project gained steam and official status in the 1990s, when the collapse of the Soviet Union made possible new relationships among nations. Barbara Crissette covered some of the torturous discussions held at the UN for the New York Times. They went for months on defining crimes, crimes against women. We learned about ethnic cleansing. There had to be very careful language about the forced movement of people and the changes of residence. And as it was finally codified, they're down into incredible detail. And this is the kind of thing that took so long. Now, lay over top of that, you know, east, west, north, south, um, and uh, the, the communist world just coming out from the communist world and having to, to think in terms of an international system which they had never taken part in before. This is, of course, what, what created the hours and hours of, of um, discussion and debate and what made many people almost throw up their hands and say, we're never going to get all these countries together to decide on, on the common, even the common definitions of a crime. It seems amazing that they pulled it off. 
They did because they had a lot of committed people, the best legal talent from all over the world. And they had the best legal talent from small, poor countries. They had it from big, powerful countries. After painstaking deliberation, a consensus was hammered out. There would be three main types of crimes in the court's jurisdiction. War crimes, including use of prohibited weapons and mistreatment of prisoners. Crimes against humanity, in which civilians are systematically harmed. And genocide, which aims to destroy a particular ethnic group. How did you feel when in 2002, President George W. Bush signed the American Service Members Protection Act, mm -hmm. which exempts U.S. military personnel from prosecution by the International Criminal Court. Right. This is a bill uh, that had been sponsored in the year 2000 by Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina and Congressman Tom DeLay of Texas. Former Ambassador David Sheffer. We had vigorously opposed it in the Clinton administration, and I had lobbied uh, many members of Congress to just kill this thing. Uh, and we succeeded. But of course, when the Republican administration came in, it became a very attractive bill and was put forward again by those two individuals, Helms and, and DeLay, and certainly fit in with to, to the overall, I think, concept of, of President George W. Bush's approach to international justice and foreign policy. Um, so, it was a very uh, difficult moment because it, it, it was a reversal of our leadership in international justice. I think history now shows how destructive that act was in 2002 with the American Service Members Protection Act. However, its punitive provisions have all been repealed by Congress, namely that uh, it, it was designed to punish other countries that joined the ICC. The International Criminal yeah, Court. Yeah, the International Criminal Court. And, you know, punished by withdrawing economic assistance, economic support funds, by shutting down bilateral military programs. Well, uh, 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 through the years, of course, uh, that works against U.S. interests. Uh, and even the Pentagon said, for gosh sakes, would you repeal this? Because we, you're destroying our mill-to-mill -mill relationships with so many countries. Because they're not going to walk away from the International Criminal Court. They are walking, in fact, they're charging towards it. The vast majority of the world's nations have now joined the International Criminal Court, becoming what's known as states' parties. These include England and nearly all of Europe, Canada, all of Latin America, Australia, much of Africa. But to date, the big powers, including the United States, Russia, China, and India, have not ratified the treaty, nor have most nations in the Middle East, including Israel. Efforts to promote U.S. ratification of the court treaty have long met with stiff resistance from the Pentagon. The concern by the military is that situations could arise where American soldiers are operating on the territory of a state party to the treaty, and if the uh, atrocity crimes that fall within the jurisdiction of the court are committed by American soldiers on that state party territory, 
then there is the uh, strong possibility that American soldiers would fall within the jurisdiction of the court because they're operating on the territory of a state party to the court. Um, and, uh, and that, of course, goes against the grain of, of any exposure to a court of this character unless we're actually a party to you know, the treaty of the court. Um, so there's that, that, there's that basic objection uh, uh, right there. But I think the larger one is, and it's a little more conceptual, is that there's a great fear that um, the potential liability of the U.S. military uh, under the Rome Statute, whether we're a state party to the court or not, um, would tend to unduly influence the actual making of foreign policy, the actual making of military policy, because we'd always be looking over our shoulder to calculate our liability before the court before uh, f finalizing the plans for a military operation. And the military, of course, don't want to have that impediment in their thinking. But considering the content of, of the crimes that the court has jurisdiction over, war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, aggression, mm -hmm. Why would it be such a bad thing for military leaders in the United States to have to be looking over their shoulders mm -hmm. at the potential for legal liability right. for such crimes? Well, that has quite often been my argument, and uh, I, I think I express it at one point in the book because I truly believe, you know, that uh, we surely the United States is not in the business of planning and executing genocide or undertaking the kind of massive policy planning required for crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, etc. Remember, in order to prove or in order to indict before the court, um, the prosecutor has to demonstrate that he or she has identified the criminal intent of the perpetrator, of the leader that he's targeting. So, and that's very difficult. And, and you have to imagine that uh, if the United States has military or, or political figures who literally exercise criminal intent to commit these massive crimes against civilian populations, actually, they, they, they really should stand a, to account for it before a court of law. Uh, ideally, it would be an American court of law. Um, but we, you know, the, the, we, have to, we have to say to the world that we certainly stand for that proposition, that they must come to justice, individuals who have the criminal intent, uh, and then exercise it with respect to these types of crimes. The Financial Times reviewed your book. It said, no country has done more to create an international justice system than the United States or to keep itself outside the reach of that system. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? There's a lot of truth to it. Uh, and of course, that was, that was the complexity of so many of my negotiations in the 1990s. In its two decades of functioning, the International Criminal Court has shown mixed results. That's the case for many judicial systems, including in the United States, where the Department of Justice is a continuing subject of controversy and sometimes political influence. 
The ICC has prosecuted several high-profile cases, notably involving use of child soldiers and crimes of sexual abuse. But the court has been substantially hobbled by political constraints. Most observers hope the ICC's full potential may eventually be realized. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Kathy Graham and Ken Rogers. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Steve Martin, Jack Clappish, Thomas Royal, David Cruz, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. To download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This segment, part of our project, The Rights of Civilians, is Humankind program number 290. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.